Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have Davis Jones, who's co-founder of Easel, which is a venture-backed professional development community headquartered in San Francisco. Jones earned his MBA uh, with a degree in global finance from EDHEC Business School in France, which ranked as one of the top 50 MBA schools in the world. Uh, and he's done his bachelor's degree from Sonoma State University in California. Welcome to the show, Davis. Hi, thanks for having me, Rohit. I'm excited to be here, and uh, thanks for listening, whoever's listening. Awesome. So, uh, you know, how, how did you get your start uh, in entrepreneurship, and what made you start Easel? Well, those are so entrepreneurship generally and Easel are a little bit different. I started entrepreneur. I started my first business when I was 14 years old, and I don't know why I've loved entrepreneurship, but I mean, it really is my passion. I've Everything that I've done in terms of my education, uh, my focus, why I've taken jobs, where I've gone, where I've gone, ever since I was a young, very young person, has always been about learning how to build a business that means something to people. Got it. Uh, and, and, you know, how, how did you get the start with Easel? Well, I got the start with Easel. I guess the, the story really kind of begins when I finished uh, my MBA program, even though I really liked uh, that I did choose to go and get an MBA, quite frankly, the career services were totally inadequate, both at the MBA level and at the undergraduate level. And so when I went onto the job market, I found that basically I didn't know anything about getting a job. I didn't know anything about uh, how to build a career that was valuable financially, valuable personally. And, you know, I have to say I was a little bit angry because, you know, I spent quite a lot of money on my uh, MBA and on my undergraduate degree. And so my first job was actually as a recruiter because basically um, I had uh, finally said, what is wrong with my job search? And then my friend gave me this resume template and uh, I, and I modified it a little bit and then I created a resume and then I sent it round to a few people where I was living and then they sent it to some recruiters. The recruiters contacted me and said, uh, you know, why don't you join us as a recruiter? So basically my first, you know, corporate job after having an MBA was recruitment. And so I went from knowing nothing about job hunting to knowing a lot about it very fast. And, uh, my brother was graduating from Stanford around that time. And he said, you know, none of my friends know about getting a job either. And they're all pretty scared. We should create an online course about this stuff. And so we did. And it became the best-selling online course on job hunting in the history of the internet. And then we built a business around that. Interesting. So, so did you did you get your start with, uh, you know, building courses on Udemy and Skillshare, or were you were you selling courses on your own website? You know, honestly, it was an intern who changed the course of Easel forever. So we were just building the course, regardless of where it was going to be distributed. We were just like we think that we can make really cool videos about this stuff and maybe we can sell it to colleges. Maybe we'll put it on YouTube. We don't really know. And uh, my, my brother was really interested in animation. So we decided to make the courses really colorful and animated and fun. And I used to be in the music business. So I like things that are very entertaining. 
And then we had an intern, this guy, Neil Hopkins, who was one of the best interns we ever had. And I said, Neil, I want you to go look on the internet and figure out if there's any place that we can sell these, sell a course. And he said, I found this website called Udemy and it uh, looks like people are selling courses there. So I think we, can, we should put it there. And then, so we put it there. We eventually put it on Skillshare and um, in both those places, the course became very, very successful. And we thought, wow, we're like making, you know, we're making a little business here. So, so it was really an intern who found uh, that, you know, about this whole online course world and that you could make money from it and stuff like that. Got it. And, and uh, are you still, uh, you know, putting up courses on Udemy or, um, you know, do you, do you uh, put courses exclusively on either? Oh, yeah. We put courses on Udemy. We, we, have, we put courses on CNN course website, on TechCrunch and Mashable and Skillshare. So we have our courses in lots of different places. And yeah, we're still creating courses like, um, you know, we create, we've been contacted by some uh, content providers to create courses for businesses. So now companies like PayPal and Lyft and organizations like the World Bank, they use our content. Um, so yeah, we create lots of courses and uh, put them in lots of places. Got it. And you know, uh, uh, I'm actually one of the students, one of your students, you know, part of growth hacking course. Uh, well, I thank you that. for learning with Easel. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, what I realized is, is that you invest a lot in video production, you know. So uh, how can I improve my video quality? I've got a few videos on YouTube. Um, so what would be your uh, take on, you know, improving a video quality so that, uh, you know, my YouTube channel could attract more viewers? Yeah. I think that you're asking the wrong question from my perspective. There's a really famous quote from Jack Welch that I always remember, which is that if you don't have a competitive advantage, then don't compete. If you don't have a competitive advantage, don't compete. And, you know, here we are doing a podcast. So it's in podcasts are great and people love podcasts. And so, you know, the podcast is an audio medium, right? You don't need to do video production to have a podcast. And if you really do want to, uh, and now let's talk about YouTube and video production generally. So like, if you want to compete with, with video production in terms of really high video, produ video you know, production value, we got to think about the other people who are in the arena, in the competitive arena, right? And very quickly, you're talking about like Pixar and, uh, movie studios and professional animators and if you think about that it's going to be very difficult to compete against those people without a lot of resources so youtube is but so so broadly speaking you know it takes a very serious commitment to decide to compete in the video world um and easel has made that commitment but you know as you notice Easel doesn't have podcasts because to me, the only podcast that I would release would be something that was the quality of something like one of my favorite podcasts, Radio Lab. And I don't know if you've heard Radio Lab, but their audio engineering is absolutely fabulous. And so when I listen to Radio Lab, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. And so that gets back to that Jack Welch quote if you don't have a competitive advantage, 
don't compete. However, YouTube is a little bit of a different ecosystem from what I've noticed. I don't really think you need to have movie level quality to be successful on YouTube. Uh, I think that YouTube is a little bit more about what's trending. It's a little bit more about lots of content. It's, it's about doing kind of crazy things. Um, so that, that particular ecosystem is not in my, in my perspective about video production quality necessarily. It's more about some of these other things that determine whether or not your videos get a lot of views and if you get a lot of subscribers and stuff like that. Got it. And, uh, yeah, who would be the ideal target audience for Ezen? It's hard. You know, that's one thing, especially as somebody who teaches growth hacking, that we've always struggled with at Ezel because we don't really have a persona that is, that is, that is really specific. We have learned about the people who tend to succeed within the easel community, but you know, it's, um, it's not somebody, it's, I can't say it's people from the ages of 25 to 32 who tend to have this income range and think like this. It's just not that simple. Um, our customers and the, the students that tend to do really well tend to be people who are humble, people who are interested in providing value to other people. Oftentimes they're people that believe that lifelong learning, that basically learning is a lifelong journey, not just something that you go to school for, get your certificate and then leave. Um, and uh, I guess they tend to be visual learners. A lot of our students love the fact that we really invest in video so that you can learn a little bit easier versus something that's maybe a little bit more boring. So those things are, those are some elements that create, that, that our, our student base tends to share but I can't tell you that there's one specific kind of person that takes these courses. We have over 150,000 students now all over the world. So there's just a, a huge range of people that take easels courses. Got it. And, uh, you know, on, on the easel platform, I saw that you offer courses as low as, uh, as, uh, you know, nine or $10, uh, but you know, uh, what would be, you know, what would you advise course creators when they want to, price the courses, you know, I, I could see uh, some growth hacking courses uh, priced as high as $1,000. Um, so, you know, how, is there any advice on, you know, uh, uh, if somebody, you know, releases 70 hours of content, they should price it at, at, at an X range? Uh, what would be your take on that? Easel places purpose over profit. So I will lead with that. I mean, I do believe that particularly courses like our growth hacking course and our um, resume writing course, or we call it the career hacking course, they provide way more value than $10. Um, I mean, for example, in the career management course, just by enrolling in the course, you're getting a sample bank of, you know, 50 professionally written resumes, tons of guys. I mean, all that stuff is probably worth in the range of at least $300 to $400. Having said that, I think that it's a totally different business model to ask somebody to pay $1,000 for information. And um, I think in terms of it, it implies a lot for your marketing, it implies a lot for customer service. I think somebody who's paying $1,000 for an online course is going to expect a lot more in terms of customer service and things like that. So I'm not saying it's impossible, and I have thought about it in the past, 
Um, but from a business standpoint, I think it means it, it's really different if somebody's paying a really high price point. Um, and then from, uh, it also, it, it implies something about your audience. You know, if you are going to have people paying a thousand dollars for a course, then I don't know, you can expect to have maybe 2000 people in your community and you know, I don't know how you're going to use that community or how you're going to work with them, but, but that's very different than having a very low price point like easel has, and then having 150,000 people in your community. Um, so to us, we've decided that our purpose is to make higher education accessible to all. And so we want to have the lowest price point possible while maintaining a minimum profit margin that we know about internally and it's competitive with the education industry. But our goal is to lower costs as low as we can go while maintaining that profit margin because we believe in the accessibility of information. So we've made it, we've made that choice out of our philosophy. Um, and I guess you could call it a strategy, but it's certainly not a revenue maximizing strategy. Um, so that's how we made that choice. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, kind of growth hacking, you know, the, the, the lot of moving parts, but uh, a lot of listeners on the podcast are small business owners. So, uh, you know, what, what advice would you give to people who would want to acquire, engage, uh, and retain these users and, you know, get maybe the first thousand users and uh, keep them engaged uh, 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 with, the, with the business? Make human connections. Make real connections with people and provide real value to people. Look for people that actually uh, care about what you're doing and that you care about what they're doing. Uh, because, and, and this is a very different approach, but I do think that it's particularly um, appropriate for small business owners. I mean, if you're PayPal, then you don't need to know all your users, right? But there's a, a it's kind of an older um, idea, but pretty famous in the startup community, which is, it, it's, and I think a guy wrote a book about it. It's called A Thousand True Fans. A Thousand True Fans. And so the idea is that if you have a thousand people that genuinely care about what you're doing and they depend on it, they would really miss it from their lives if it went away, then you have a business. You have something that you can build from. And so especially in that first thousand users, you know, you got to be able to treat them like kings and queens, but you also got to be ready to tell the people who are bad that they need to get lost. But when you find somebody really cool who cares about what you're doing, go deep with that relationship and find a way to make it meaningful. In terms of growth hacking, though, as a practice, I would say that, you know, growth hacking is kind of a sexy word. And a lot of people think that it means that you're going to go and have some shortcut that enables you to go from a business that has no customers to being Airbnb in three months. And that is just not the case. Um, and, and I think that it's, it's a shame that people associate growth hacking with kind of these tricks on these, these marketing tricks, because those tricks go away as fast as they were created. As soon as somebody starts doing something that gets a thousand email signups and they tell some, they write a blog post about it, you know, a month later, it's everybody's doing it and it, and it doesn't feel fresh. So growth, what the value of growth hacking really is, is the practice of growth hacking. Growth hacking is like yoga or basketball or running or stretching or anything else that you build over time. It's a, it's a practice of when you have an idea, how can I experiment to test that hypothesis? 
how can I frame it as an experiment that I can measure? How can I make that measurement for a low cost deployed in a very short amount of time? How can I build on my successes? How am I tracking what I'm doing? How am I working with my team to make all this happen faster? That's the value of growth hacking, not the tips and tricks from my perspective. Got it. And uh, are, are there any companies which you feel, uh, which you think, you know, are doing growth hacking the right way? Well, it probably would be difficult to know about it. Um, I think that, you, you know, certainly in, in Silicon Valley, uh, there are companies that are, uh, you know, practicing growth hacking at a high level. They're having teams of, of growth hackers that are working together, and I'm sure that they're, you know, that they're very effective. But, you know, oftentimes you don't know it because to the consumer, you just see that the company is growing and that maybe you received an ad that seemed to make sense to you, and so you clicked on something. So it's difficult to know which companies are really executing growth hacking well. I will say that I've been impressed with the way that Airbnb has uh, been pretty aggressive about taking market share, but they've also retained their focus on their human purpose, on staying connected with people, on controlling their narrative of their business and society. And I think that all that stuff is really important. And I'm sure that on the inside, there's a lot of data behind all that stuff. Um, and also Airbnb is building virality into their product. And I think that's very important um, because the original growth hacking um, is about how does the use of your product create growth itself? How do you not have to pay to acquire new users? Um, and so I think Airbnb does a pretty good job of that. Um, and, and they're the company that comes to mind right away. Got it. And uh, you know, you come back to uh, easily, you know, how, how much money have you raised till now? I think probably in total, we've raised around $50,000. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. And, uh, you, uh, you know, there's a digital degree program that you're running where you're inviting others to invest into easel. So, uh, so are, are you, are you asking non-accredited investors also to invest into, into your startup? Yes, we are. And this is part of our uh, drive to have real human relationships with people that matter. Um, I'm an, I'm a, I'm have an economics training background and I believe that good relationships uh, in the business world, particularly are based on good economics. That is that the person who's, if somebody is going to contribute something to easel, they should be getting something of economic value out of it. Um, so I'm not looking for somebody to donate to easel, but I do want people to invest in easel and receive money from easel. And I believe that that's a long-term sustainable relationship uh, that has long-term value. So uh, what you're describing Rohit is that we are, using new securities laws in the United States to allow anybody to invest in easel. And so far uh, about 60% of our investors have been students. And to me, that's fantastic. We are thinking about uh, moving towards decentralizing our shareholder structure to students as much as possible um, because we think that having a student owned institution of higher education that lives on the internet and has a global focus, is pretty interesting and that it will be long-term uh, perhaps very, very successful. Um, but the digital degree that you described is, is more about making higher education accessible to everybody. And, and you know, uh, being from India, uh, I know that I'm sure you can think of people who uh, want to go to college, but for whatever reason, they have to either they have to have a job or they have a child or um, college is just too expensive for them. They don't have access 
access to higher education. Um, and India is, you know, a middle-income country. Imagine the situation in some of the really developing economies that are happening in Africa um, and in some parts of Asia. And we know that population growth is just going through the roof in Africa. Uh, probably in our lifetimes, Africa is going to have as many people as Asia. And these people need higher education. And we believe that uh, the digital degree can serve some of these people in this way. Makes sense. Uh, now, uh, regarding courses, you know, uh, what I've realized is I, I, I do enroll a lot of courses, but I don't complete it. Um, so do you, do you face the same sort of problems for, for your students? And how do, how do you plan to resolve such, uh, such issues whereby, you know, people do not complete the courses? Well, I guess uh, people tend to complete easel courses a lot more than our competitors. So our data suggests that easel courses are about 70% more engaging than, uh, than our peers. And we get that because of data we get from Udemy. Basically, people watch our courses for 70% longer than our, than our peers in general. And that's, I think, a lot has to do with our video production, um, investments in that area. And uh, what we're doing more and more is we're trying to have um, alternative routes for people to earn actual credentials that mean things in the workplace. So that's why, um, you know, if somebody goes and earns Easel's Facebook ad certificate, they can hopefully use that to help them get clients. Um, and again, that's, that's economic meaning in, the, in what we're doing here. Interesting. And, you know, how big is your team? And, uh, you know, if you want to talk about the revenue numbers, uh, which is in last. Sure, yeah, we have four people on the team. Uh, we've hired two people recently, one person for student support and one person for product. And um, Easel's revenue is growing organically at about 50%. Uh, it's more like 55% every year. So I expect that in 2018, we might get to, you know, maybe $300,000 in revenue, depending on some of the things that we do. And uh, so, you know, Easel's not a huge business uh, yet. And that's cool. Uh, we're a sustainable business. We, we don't rely on external funding to survive. Uh, we have an already thriving business. And we think that by putting purpose over profit, that we, we have, we, that, you know, we're going to continue to be meaningful to students, which means that we have a real business. Awesome. So, so let's quickly do the top three. Uh, what's your favorite business book? Well, okay. So I think I'll mention a few things. I really enjoyed reading um, a book called uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And it's a book um, by uh, Mark Andreessen's former partner, which describes their experience growing um, a company. I, it talks about Netflix, uh, I part of Netscape. And then I, I forgot the name of their second company, but it really just describes, I, I think it really describes why startups um, are not easy and that you shouldn't expect them to be easy. And I, that was really helpful for me. Um, I also really liked a book called Good Profit by Charles Koch. Uh, Charles Koch is the, owns the second biggest private company in the world, which is Koch Industries. And even though he's a relatively controversial figure in the, in the United States, he's a brilliant economic mind. And he talks a lot about, uh, you know, looking at your business from an economic standpoint um, versus a lot of times we tend to think that, oh, my problem is that, I don't have the right strategy or I don't have a pretty enough logo or something. And I think that in general, that's not your problem. In general, your problem is that the economic relationship is not set up correctly. So I really liked the book for that purpose. But probably the most fundamental uh, thing 
related to business for me was not a business book at all. It, it was related to my spirituality and it's not religious per se, but there was a, a mythologist in the United States called Joseph Campbell. And he wrote um, a bunch of books on mythology where he would look at the, at the patterns of uh, similar myths across cultures. So, uh, you know, there's a, a myth from India that I remember he talks about that I love and some from native Americans and, and United States and all over the world from Africa and from Christian traditions and Buddhist traditions. It was called the power of myth. And it really turned me into somebody who appreciated the value of being focused on other human beings and, uh, and embracing your inner spirituality and making that meaningful in the world. And that's not to say to push your values on other people, but uh, that, that was really influential on me. And, and it made me feel like, business was more than a way to make money. It's a way to be purposeful in the world. Yeah, interesting. You know, if you could go back in time when you started uh, working on easel, what is the one thing you would have focused on? I think the, if I would, so like if I was to restart easel, what would I have focused on? That's right. Yeah. You know, anything that I would have done dramatically differently, we had to learn everything we did. I guess I probably would have um, avoided the topic of entrepreneurship, maybe in terms of creating online courses. Um, for some reason, the topic of entrepreneurship is a very uh, difficult. It's very difficult to get people to take those courses. I don't know exactly what it is, um, but uh, maybe would have skipped creating a course on entrepreneurship. But other than that, everything that we've done has been a great learning experience. And so it's very difficult to say something that I would have changed because everything that we did that failed enabled us to learn and get stronger. Got it. And uh, what's your favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, or lead pages? I'm pretty much a Google Sheets nerd. I love Google Sheets. Got it. And, and, and uh, you know, what, what is the best way people can reach out to you? Yeah, I, I love LinkedIn. So I invite LinkedIn connections. Please connect with me. And if you have any partnership requests, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm learning how to, how to receive all these partnership requests that people are, are bringing to us. And we want to listen to you. We want to honor your energy that you are bringing to it. If you think there's a way that you can help easel, uh, you know, be meaningful to other people and with your input. So connect with me on LinkedIn and let's talk. Awesome, Davis. Thanks a lot for coming on to the show, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rohit. Thanks for staying up late with me to record the interview. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.